Necessity is the mother of invention So get ready for a mother of a ride Gas up your laptops, your tablets and devices Cause our asses are all quarantined inside More and more every day The world it feels so very far away Less and less things to do So pull up a chair and let us talk to you And I'm Cody, and this is the More and More Everyday Podcast. He's a fifth grade teacher. She's a historian. And this is a daily blog and interview series brought to you by the South Phoenix Oral History Project to capture and preserve the stories of students and teachers in the COVID-19 era. Welcome. Today we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Barrett-Fox, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Arkansas State University. She's an expert on sociology of disasters and the writer of a think piece called Please Do a Bad Job of Putting Your Courses Online recently featured in InsideHigherEd.com. Dr. Fox reminds us to respect our students' privacy, manage our expectations of student technology, and remember, you're not working from home. You're at home during a crisis trying to get some work done. We're joined today by Dr. Rebecca Barrett-Fox. You're uh, an expert a bit of teaching online. (laughs) Well, if experience makes expertise, I hope so. Yeah, I've been doing this position. This is year four of this position, but um, for at least, oh, seven years, maybe longer than that, I've had some teaching online. I really like teaching online. I didn't to like it. I think a lot of us who take it up um, aren't necessarily well trained and I think that was more true in the past. I think there are more efforts to prepare people for it now. Um, I think it it has a lot of liberatory possibilities for students um, and for Arkansas students in particular. We're a public university and we teach a wide variety of students. So we'd say kind of our average student is non-traditional anyway, but that's even more the case online. I really like working with those students, and I like working with students who are care about the place where they live and want to stay there. And I think for states where there's a, a high rural population, that's really important because we don't want students to have to leave rural places to come to a college town if they don't want to. If they want to, that's a different story. But if they want, if they care about serving their rural communities, I think we should encourage that. Great, thank you. Well, that's, that's great that you already had the, the online experience ready to go. That I mean, a lot of people have been, you know, panicking with that, yeah. like you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are some of the highs and lows you've been experiencing uh, over the past few weeks? Um, I was fortunate that all my classes are designed to be online, and I didn't have to do them all at once. So, as I said, I started teaching um, partly, you know, about half my classes were online. Um, and then I shifted to more and more of them being online. So I was able to do that slowly, and I think that was more comfortable than what folks are having to do now. So this adjustment hasn't been as hard for me as it has for some other folks um, or as hard for my students because they signed up for an online class, which doesn't – but th- that's still interrupted. Uh, and particularly, I'm teaching sociology of disasters this semester, Wow. Um, yeah, so it's been busy. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, last weekend on Saturday, our co- the town where my college is located, Jonesboro, was hit by a tornado, a significant tornado. I don't, you may have seen that on the news. Um, and just amazingly, we, we had two hospitalizations and 22 injuries. It hit the mall. 
And it was really because of COVID that the mall was basically empty. Otherwise, you would have been looking at a lot of fatalities. But that class in particular, Sociology of Disasters, a lot of my students are already in careers where they um, are working in disaster management or disaster response. And they're taking this class as part of a disaster management minor. And so those students are 911 responders, police officers, n- nurses, um, and so their life outside of the classroom is really stressed right now. Mm-hmm. So, and like many of us, they have kids at home um, all of a sudden and, and are attending to them too. So even in a classroom that is designed to be online and, is, and the students are well prepared to be online and they chose that, there's a lot of negotiation that we have to make. I, I, that's incumbent on faculty to do that for a a lot of us who are prepared, who are, have already been teaching online, we can also forget that um, it's not just about moving our classes online, but also about figuring out how to organize our days and for our students to organize our days. So to be an online learner outside, also means outside of the classroom, the structures of that. So I have found it to be interesting to help people figure that out um, in terms of highs and lows, certainly the reminder this weekend when Jonesboro was hit with a tornado that um, one disaster doesn't prevent another, no, you know, yeah. that sounds and, terrible. Yeah. And how to do recovery. We, I think we have 30 some people, I think associated with the university who lost housing, how to set up shelter for them, how to do first responder work. Um, when we don't have the medical protective supplies that we need. Um, and that doesn't mean another tornado doesn't come tomorrow. And there's no choice in that. And that's the thing is with people in housing and people, and people need help. And there's just no, there's no saying no to that, you know? Right. So, that's wow. exactly right. Right. And you don't say no to your neighbors and you don't, no. you no. don't want to say no to your neighbors. And, um, yeah, there are things that, you know, we, we can't delay responding to that. We don't have choices about it. And it doesn't mean that tomorrow something else won't happen. It wow. feels really unfair, right? Because it is unfair. But uh, disasters are kind of impersonal like that. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. So um, it's been encouraging to see the resilience of my students. Um, I don't want to say it's frustrating. I'm not sure the word for it. But, you know, I, I had a stu- students who write to me and say, and I'll just give a composite example because I, I don't want to violate students' privacy, but they might say something like, well, I'm a nurse right now and I'm having to, you know, I'm working 16-hour days. Um, and so I have half an hour to get home, seven hours to sleep, half an hour to get back to work. I don't know when to get my homework done. And then they'll say things to me like, well, do you have any advice about how I could make sure I get my homework done? And my advice is you should not be doing your homework, hmm. right? Like you're being called to your community now. And I'm gonna, we're going to figure this out later. But for, for right now, you have to go attend to this other thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I have, I just think I have really dis- highly disciplined students. And maybe that's because they're online students already. So they have to come in pretty highly disciplined to be successful. Mm-hmm. That might be a misperception sometimes people have about online students. This idea that they're not serious or they're not... Um, they're not prepared, but to be successful online, you have to have really be very highly disciplined. I have some students 
maybe in particular in sociology of disaster because they are the kind of students who's going to want to do things, crisis work, are, are highly motivated students to be able to say to them, this doesn't have to be the most important thing for you right now. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I'm a little worried that they're not hearing that from other faculty members. Um, and so um, I, want my, I want my students to know that I think I communicate that to them that you know, we'll still get all our learning done. Our path to doing that might take a little longer. Or there'll be some times we step off the path and step back on the path. Um, but it's been really, it's been both inspiring to see how much learning um, students are doing. Um, but again, I, maybe the low is, do we do a good job of releasing ourselves from unfair expectations? You know, that this is not a normal time. And, you know, in American culture, we really love these, I worked hard and I hope overcame a terrible thing. And that's a lovely story. Um, and it, but it's not going to work for all of us for the very long time that this is going to take. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. It, it is a huge, it is a, and yeah, that's, um, the thing I noticed was just like when you said, it's like a, like the school is like a release for everybody and it's just a thing you can kind of go to. And so trying to time and the time management it takes and the discipline is all very, uh, very important stuff. Yeah. Um. You know, for so many of um, our students, I think, school has organized, especially traditional students, right, from kindergarten, maybe until their senior year of college, this is a long time to organize your time around school, your schedule around school, your identity around school, and have that very suddenly gone is really disruptive. Yeah, I'm um, having struggles with that too right now with, with trying to schedule <laughs> my day. I'm, I'm so used to being in school my whole life, and now I'm, as a fifth grade teacher, I have to kind of make sure I schedule my, set my day up and I set alarms throughout the day to do things at the right time. Yeah. So Yeah. And it can just be disorienting. But, like, yeah. what day is it? What am I doing? And it's not that you're, you're lazy, right? Um, and it, or don't have an internal clock, but it's, I think it's disorienting when those kind of structures go away. Mm -hmm. I, um, I can eat lunch whenever I want now. It's or nice. forget lunch. Two or three times a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Is there a watershed moment you've experienced or was there a particular day where this all became really real for you? Um, for me personally, I, I think I saw it pretty quickly. Um, and I don't, I don't think that means I'm um, a clairvoyant. Maybe I'm just cynical. Uh, so um, I have a, a lot of concern about um, precarious labor in higher education um, how many, uh, the, the shift to adjunctification, how many of our teachers um, are, are really live on a, a marginal income and um, our contracts are not safe or stable. And some, something like this, I think, um, can really throw all of that into chaos. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I had... So that became really clear to me pretty quickly. And that with so many of the people who teach college students so um, precarious in their jobs, I knew that that would mean a lot of anxiety. Even if an individual didn't think about it yet. Like even if you weren't thinking, hey, you know, maybe schools won't open in the fall. And that means I won't have a contract. And that means I'm actually losing my job. And that means this is actually the last time I might teach college. And that actually means a career shift. And then I'm thinking, well, why did I get a PhD then? 
and it, it just can, can tumble into all of these questions, not just of labor and income and how will you support your family, but identity. Um, I think that all of those questions are there once you say maybe we don't open in the fall. Mm-hmm. And that just produced a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Um, and so I was concerned about that right away. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I also have concerns, I think, like a lot of other people about well, what, how will this change universities? Will it be a push towards um, massive online education, which we, we kind of had a flurry of that a couple years ago. And I think, push back on it. Um, I think mostly students don't want to be online learners. Mm-hmm. Um, students understand that it's a different kind of learning um, and that a lot of them don't have the resources to do, be successful at it. And there's no shame in that. There's no reason they should have to be successful at that. Um, so I think students have prevented us from turning into that. I don't think that there is, I'm not too concerned about a cynical, larger um, effort to get rid of faculty and replace us by, uh, you know, pre-recorded lectures, Mm -hmm. because we've had the technology to do that for a long time if we wanted to. I don't think that that's going to necessarily happen, but I do think enrollment's going to be really low. Um, I think students aren't making money right now for tuition. Um, I think a lot of them aren't going to be able to leave their families easily when fall comes back around. Um, they might be caretakers for people who are ill. They might just want to stay at home where it feels safe um, during an unsure time. Um, and, and I don't necessarily even think that public health-wise campuses would be reopening in, in the fall. So that means the higher ed is going to look really different. I felt that way pretty quickly. I was surprised that some of my colleagues seemed to think, oh, well, we'll just be returning. So a lot of schools just said, well, we'll have a two-week spring break, and then we'll think about returning. And that, to me, seemed immediately irresponsible, because you have to have students who are booking flights back, and if they're leaving, they had to pack up their stuff or not. Mm. Um, and I, But I understand all the reasons what you don't want to say, hey, we're done, we're moving online for the rest of this, you know, pivoting to this online remote teaching right away. Um, but yeah, I think I, I sense that kind of right away, um, that this, this would be harder than we thought. And I think probably some of the resistance to, to thinking about it as harder and long-term is denial, um, which is uh, a coping strategy. So it's not, I say that without, not a pejorative sense, um, denial, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's how we cope with a really hard thing because thinking about all the implications for it um, is really overwhelming. And if we don't kind of introduce the idea a little bit slowly, um, maybe it's too much for us to handle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Especially, you know, but little univers- little colleges um, who th- that might not have the financial um, pillow to weather something, but also a big, you know, big university operation has lots of components to it. Um, and from, you know, caring for things growing in labs, animals that you might be responsible for, experiments that have taken years to set up, and are you now going to abandon them? There, there's, so there's a lot of things to grieve if we don't reopen um, in the fall. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about your article. I found my way to it because was it published inside higher ed? Mm-hmm. Uh, I published it on my blog, my own personal blog first. <laughs> and that's where I'm sending people when yeah. I, when they ask for the link, I send it to your blog and not to, I'm sorry, inside higher ed. <laughs> I have, uh, I have three children, a high schooler, middle schooler, and an elementary schooler. And my two older kids immediately know they're as digital natives. I know that term can be kind of contested, but they're pretty savvy. So they're right away. I like that like, term, but yeah, he likes I was like, oh, that sticks out really well. These kids are, they were born in an age of this, yeah. you know? Yeah. It, and it's, it's pretty true for these guys. What motivated you to write it? Um, I think you've mentioned some of the motivations, but I love the list of things for why we shouldn't be so uh, on board. <laughs> you know, so tell me a little bit about writing yeah. the article and, and what was your thinking behind it? Well, I saw, so we maybe were, we were just, a day or so really into this um, even discussions of a pivot to remote teaching um, and I saw some of my friends really over functioning um, is what it was and so partly that was just frankly it was disre- it's disrespectful to the work it takes to build a good online class mm-hmm. so when I build an online class it takes about a hundred hours and I take it through a peer review process mm-hmm. um, and so it's, it's, I think, pretty high quality, um, which is not how every, not, that's not what everybody's process looks like, but that's what my process looks like. Um, and so when people are like, well, I'll put my, you know, five classes online this weekend. Well, no, you, you probably, you won't be building an online class. So just accept that there is a huge difference in what we're doing. And partly they could say, well, I'll just put it online as if it's an online class because they really didn't know the work involved. That it's it's really two different kinds of teaching, to to do a, a build an online class, and teach a regular class, or even take that regular class and very quickly move it to remote learning, in a crisis situation. So I saw folks saying that they were going to do that either very casually and not understanding the amount of work required, um, or like I said, over functioning. <laughs> so all of a the sudden they're going to learn all these new technologies experiment with all these, um, you know, new forms of engagement with students, develop new assignments and new rubrics, and it's just unreasonable. I mean, like, for their own sake to say, you're, you're not going to be doing that. Like, it's, it's too much. And if you do something really hard, very poorly, it doesn't help your students, right? And so I think teachers, it's very, and I think this is true K through college, we are overachievers, as, as a rule, you know, we're used to handling a crisis, we're used to high stress, we're used to quick turnaround, we're used to meeting new demands, we want to lean in, we want to have a growth mindset, we want to have grit and resilience, and all of these things that are, are tr- you know, true and good things, and we like to prove ourselves, sometimes competitively against other teachers, I think, um, that we can sacrifice more. I think in this particular situation, you can do all that and make a really lousy product, because it's impossible. So rather than saying, I'm going to shoot for the moon, uh, or, you know, I'll shoot for the moon, but I'll hit the star, or shoot for the stars, hit the moon, I guess is the expression. You're not going to hit the moon. <laughs> You're going to shoot for the stars, and then it's not going to work because you don't have the infrastructure, because you don't have the training, because you haven't thought through all the privacy or technology concerns about it. 
Um, and then it's, you're not going to land on the moon. You're going to land hard on earth and you've done damage to people. You've wasted people's time. You've wasted people's resources. You've asked vulnerable students maybe to share, um, private information. Um, oftentimes with these different kinds of technology that you didn't have a right for them to ask, uh, a right to ask them to share. And so there's a lot of damage that can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, I think, I think the good news is that pedagogy is what helps us here. And if we can remind teachers that really what you're good at is pedagogy, you don't have to be good at technology and adopting new technologies. Remember that what drew you to this was that you like the pedagogy, especially for teachers who are already teaching online, right? Because a lot of us have had the option to teach online, chose not to do it because we don't like the tech. All right, let's go back to the pedagogy you like, and you can be successful through that pedagogy. Um, but I, I saw so many of my friends, I think out of a good place, over-functioning, trying to do more than what was possible. And I really mean it wasn't possible, not like if they tried harder, they could do it. I mean, it really wasn't going to be possible, and they couldn't see that yet. But having developed online courses and taught online, I could see, hey, it's not possible. You can't do this in a weekend. Um, and you don't even know, you don't even know what you can't do because you haven't done it. You haven't been trained on it and you haven't experimented yet. <laughs> and so you won't even know the questions to ask. So in that list that I, I say, like, you know, your students don't know technology like you think they know it. Um, your students don't have access to broadband or a laptop or a webcam like you think that they do. And, and so and, and if you're a classroom teacher, uh, in a traditional classroom, you haven't had to think about those things. Mm -hmm. So you're not at fault for not thinking about them. But if you were trained and prepared to be an effective online teacher, you would be thinking about those. Again, it's really a different set of job expectations. But people, I understand why they didn't think through them. Um, but because it hasn't been their job to think through them. That's mm -hmm. why. But again, like I said, I think it comes, I think it overall comes out of a good place a desire to do a good job and perform well and, and make sure that classes are rigorous and, and meeting academic standards. I think there's also some of it that comes out of a bad place. And I, I, maybe I shouldn't say bad. I think it comes out of an anxious place. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy during a time of unsurety to say, well, what, what I'm good at is, is this thing. So I'm going to do it extra good. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll protect my job. It'll, um, give structure to my day. It'll um, help reinforce my identity. Uh, it's an area that I can control. Those anxieties are, are reasonable. You can understand why a person has them. Um, but at the point that they start then imposing on other people, like students, then your effort to do a good job actually creates problems for the people you're, you're there to serve. And so... Um, it sounds, I don't want it to sound mean because I don't mean to sound scolding, but, you know, if you're learning a bunch of new technologies because you're anxious, um, because you want to show that you care about students and you want to show to other people, you know, that you're ready to embrace this challenge, um, but that creates more barriers for your students to learn, then you're actually not doing your job with but I understand why people feel it because I've seen some schools that have, for example, added to course evaluations questions about how well did your teacher handle this crisis? 
And that to me feels like an unfair question because we're not. We, we, have, other, we have other things to worry about. Do we have our own families to worry about <laughs> yeah, as well? Like there's us, we're people too. I think why of, evaluate <laughs> anyone's reaction to a crisis as part of their job description? That, right. You know who should be evaluated that is like firefighters, right? Yeah. Like they yeah. should be asked how well yeah, do they handle a crisis? <laughs> Hostage negotiators. <laughs> but like this isn't part of my job duty, handling a crisis well. And, um, you know, we do want people to handle a crisis well, but to ask to be evaluated on that is a Mm. different story. But so I think some people are feeling very explicit pressure to shine um, and use this as a, you know, use the crisis as an opportunity. And it's like, hmm. I think that will also lead to overfunctioning. And teachers, we do it to ourselves enough. You know, we put enough pressure on ourselves to do more and more and more. Um, but just at the, at the crux of it, I think it's bad for students. So I think it's bad for us. I think it's, you know, bad for higher ed. But I think it's bad for students. They don't learn as much. If you dump a million high-tech solutions on people who don't have access to the tech, then you've, you're actually losing them, not helping them. So. Yeah. In but your that article, was the motivation. Well, and in your article, you um, list 10 things for us to remember, right? Things that we should remember when we move online. And you, you've mentioned several um, that our students know less about technology than, than we might think, um, that they will be using their phones, right? Um, to and do their Xboxes. Things. You know, some people oh, only yeah. use internet, have their home-based internet is through like an Xbox or a Switch or something like that. Yeah, and then you mentioned that they'll be sharing technology, um, something that you've um, suggested that I know a lot of our colleagues did was uh, don't survey your students, don't ask them if they have any of these things because it's not their obligation to share or tell you. Um, and you're right, I think all those surveys that go out, those are people wanting to help, wanting to know, wanting to support students. I think, and that's what brings me to your question number five, and you alluded to this in the beginning of the, of the discussion we were having, is that so many of our students are going to be working more, not fewer hours, and that many of our students are in these high-demand um, positions now that they'll be working. So talk to me a little bit about some of the stresses on our students now that we may not be taking into account like we're all aware that our students are worried about their degrees but what about their work requirements and their home lives uh things like that that we should be worried or thinking about um i mean i think it kind of goes two different directions we'll have a lot of students who have lost jobs um certainly students who are working on campus before um students who might be working in hospitality or restaurants um those students won't have an income. And that raises the question of not my grades this semester, but about finishing my degree. I think there'll also be a related question of with such high unemployment, what will be the value of a college degree? Um, So there's some demotivation there, right? If let's say you do finish your degree this year or next year, but there's high unemployment, where do you... You have all the debt of college, um, but you don't have your job prospects are maybe as good as somebody who doesn't have a degree at all. So that can be hard, and I think we have to be attentive to it. I think the other end of it is students who are actually working many more hours, and I also students who work in corrections and are facing this very thing. Um, I think a lot of them are facing a lot more work. 
especially people in healthcare, um, but also folks who just don't earn a lot of money, but we've decided, we decided are essential, but we don't want to pay well. So grocery store workers, mm-hmm. you know, I see them um, not just working long hours, um, but in really high stress conditions, you know, their job duties have expanded to include so much more cleaning and sanitation, um, but also just managing public, um, you know, so people go to the grocery store and are anxious in a way that they weren't, you know, a month ago or two months ago. And you just being a checkout clerk, I think has to be exhausting. You know, you're dealing with maybe a, a constant worry that something bad might happen at the store. You know, what if someone gets out of control or rude or people yeah. argue? And I, and I don't think, you know, that's not the majority of cases that it doesn't happen very much, but it's still, since it could always happen, you're now not just a, a clerk checking groceries out. You're also doing sanitation work. You're also, um, keeping a different kind of eye out for security. And so that's stressful. So even in jobs that are not, we might otherwise think about as high stress, I think have become a lot more stressful. And then of course, schools are closed, but my kids are out for the rest of the year. Um, That's very different. I had a student email me recently and just said, um, I'm not getting much work done with all my kids at home. Do you have any suggestions? My suggestion, you need to go take care of your kids. Yeah, you have a, a number of small children and they're anxious and you should spend your time with them. So, um, but again, that's, I think that reveals that con- that need in kind of American culture to always prove that we're improving, handling our business, being strong, getting everything done. Um, so I think all of those are concerns um, and that at we, Different states are predicted to peak at different times, but for most places, we have not seen what we expect will be the hardest part of this. And I think you see it both with faculty, our expectations of ourselves and our expectations of students has not made, uh, doesn't really recognize the reality that um, some of us will get sick and that um, some of us will be caring for people who are sick. And all of us will be grieving people who are sick and who die. We, and we don't, I don't want to be gloomy about it, but we don't, we don't have a great culture for mourning. Um, and we're going to be entering a time when even we don't have to go to the point of, of people passing away, though many of us will experience that. But there's just a lot of other kinds of grief. And if we create these hierarchies of whose grief counts and how many, how many days extension are you ahead of an assignment, if it's this versus that, I don't think we're even just in terms of practical stuff equipped to manage that, mm-hmm. right? I teach 600 students a semester. It would be a part-time job just to manage um, evaluating and determining what kind of grief my students should get compassion for. Let's say I'm too compassionate and people lie and take advantage of it. Okay, that, that's okay during a crisis. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, that's, that's, they have to live with that mistake. That's not my mistake. That's actually their mistake. Um, but I think we're naive if we just think that our traditional systems are going to be able to, to um, handle all those demands. And so I just argue for designing from the beginning for a compassionate system. And this is why I would say don't survey your students because you, let's say you have a student, you know, class of 30 students and three don't respond to the survey. 
Well, I might say, well, three didn't respond to the survey, so 27 are okay with it. Well, maybe three didn't respond to the survey because they don't even have the technology to receive a survey, right? Or the time to fill out a survey, especially if it's the sixth one they've gotten this week. And the situation is going to get worse. So what a student says today may not be true next week. Today they have a webcam. If it breaks, that doesn't mean they have a webcam in two weeks. And if you've designed a class that has to have a webcam, are you now going to punish that student because they don't have one? Right? Because you don't want them to go buy one because that's unnecessary shopping. You don't want them to use their resources and money to buy one either. They should be conserving all their resources that they can. Even things that, that students would even agree to and say, right now, yeah, I can, I can do that. But they might not have the time or the energy or the resources to do as this gets worse. Um, and again, students could agree to it, but I think it's our job as teachers to look ahead um, and think, not even probabilistically, right? Because probably, maybe, maybe it won't be as, as bad. There's a worst case scenario, right? And, and it probably won't be the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. But we do have to think, also think possibilistically. So, you know, it was not probable that a tornado was going to hit Jonesboro this weekend, right? Probably not going to happen, but it was possible. And while you can't uh, maybe effectively plan for every kind of, challenge it's pretty easy to s some of them are predictable you know um, students getting sick you getting sick that's one that's pretty likely to see again we engage in denial because we don't want it to be true and we can't maybe manage thinking about that all at one time but I think it's our job as teachers and even more so the job of administrators to think ahead to what is possible and when we kind of prepare for that, I don't think I don't think we have to signal that we're preparing that for people because that looks scary. But we just um, prepare for it by making the most accessible class we can have. Mm -hmm. And that again, I think we I think the good news is we can do that through pedagogy. So that includes things like, yeah, what happens if what happens if a student gets sick? Um, what does it mean for my whole class if a student passes away? Um, you know, sometimes a class, a very large class, that might not be something that happens. But in a smaller class, or it might not be something that shapes everybody's experiences. But in a small class, to be ready for the grief that students, you know, um, are going to experience um, if something like that happens. And you don't just plunge ahead to the next assignment and keep discussing things. You know, so, and it's not that we're grief counselors. I don't want to say that that's it either. You know, that's also beyond the scope of, of our job and, and something we're not trained to do. But just to, to recognize, like, this is a, a more dire situation than Zoom meetings or flip grids is going to be able to deal with. In your list, you, you put, you know, students are going to get sick. Some will be caring for people who will be ill. You mentioned what isolation can do with mental health domestic violence and addiction. You're right, in the last two or three weeks, as people have been scrambling to get their classes online, they're trying to put all the work out there, but they're not right. taking into account, or maybe they are, but we should continue to take into account the fact that these are human beings who are going to have very human problems now. Some of these problems exist in a face-to-face -face classroom, mm -hmm. and, um, and we have to be attentive to them there. But it's different, both in a time of crisis, 
which everybody is in, and in an online setting that they didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. You know, so those those particular things um, that intersect. I think you know, in terms of what does it mean to get your homework done in a house that is not safe? Yeah. You know, where if you are using the internet you might be accused of trying to get help for yourself. You know, so if you're with somebody who is a domestic abuser and they don't let you have a phone, um, how are you going to be doing your homework? And that, this is tough because that's always the case, but we also expect the cases of domestic violence, for example, to increase because people aren't getting the supports they need because um, people who abuse are, are not getting the support or the accountability they need um, because our police sources are stretched thin, because our, our courts are closed for, I mean, or they're working remotely, but um, a lot of cases are, are stuck in the court system. And so for people in those situations, um, to say, well, make your homework a priority, actually doing your homework might make you unsafe. Mm-hmm. And your student has no obligation to tell you that. When you email them and say, well, why aren't you doing your homework? they might be more unsafe telling you why they're not doing your homework, their, their homework, than they would be just failing the class. Mm-hmm. And so we can't take it personally, and we cannot assign intentions to students that they're lazy or they're not, um, you know, and they're not managing their time well. Nobody has an obligation to manage their time well right now. But there's all these other stories that we don't have access to. We don't have the right to have access to. And even if we ask in a really nice way, with a good heart, and even if we would be individually be respectful of students who have those problems, we have to know that students would be sharing so much and making themselves so vulnerable if they shared them with us. Domestic violence, I think, is kind of... um, I say it's the extreme case, but it's also not uncommon, right? But it, it's kind of the, the, the case where this would be most prevalent. But even in other kinds of cases, let's say a student doesn't have the money that is necessary to have a computer and the broadband you're demanding and a, a webcam and the other things that, that financially they would need. Um, if they say to their professor, hey, I don't have the money for this we would hope that every professor would say, okay, I'm going to help. I'm going to figure out how I get you the technology on a loaner. We're going to figure out how I help you get free internet or something. But students also have, they have already encountered um, teachers who won't respond that way. And some of our most vulnerable students have realized that to be successful in education, they have to do the most, pretending that they're not vulnerable, right? So when we tell a student, hey, share with me what makes you vulnerable, share with me, um, you know, what's a barrier to you. There are a lot of students who know that if they do that sharing, they're going to get labeled as a poor student, and they don't want that label, you know? And then um, I think especially, I mean, I'm more familiar with with college, um, but even for, for graduate students, so much depends on your reputation. And so if your advisor starts to think, well, he doesn't have the resources to do this, or, um, you know, she's really, it looks like she's choosing motherhood over her studies. Those are both legitimate choices that should be supported. But we know that there will be faculty members who use that as evidence why someone is not, quote unquote, cut out to do this job. And if that were not the case, if, if, um, 
if being poor and presenting yourself as poor were an advantage, people would do it. But we don't, right? If you're poor, you try to present yourself as not poor because you don't want to be read as poor. And um, because you know that people treat you differently. It's not, it's not just the material conditions that you don't have enough, but people respond to you differently. Yeah. And so when we demand that students share their struggles with us, even if we think we're doing it compassionately, we might actually be endangering them. It's all just so disrespectful. It's an invasion of privacy. Um, it, it doesn't, I mean, if even, like I said, even if it comes from a good place, it's not ours to know. So we just have to assume, I think, that this is the case. And that's even true if you teach at a well-resourced elite institution. You will have students who do not have the resources to be successful in a crisis um, and suddenly learning remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we should, we should evaluate students based on that um, when it's, they did a good job of figuring out that, that um, they would not do well in a remote situation. That's why they enrolled in your face-to-face class. Mm-hmm. And so now to say, well, why aren't you being successful at this thing that you already knew you wouldn't be successful at, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it feels unfair, you know, um, like if I went to buy a car and I bought an automatic transmission and then I got in it and it was a stick shift and I can't drive a stick shift, it's not, don't evaluate for me for not doing that well. You know, these are two different, you would say, well, there's cars, a car. No, there's a really big difference here. And if I'm not trained on the technology, I don't know how to do it. I bought an automatic for a reason. This is an unfair um, expectation. And, and I, I say unfair, and I can already hear people saying, well, life's not fair. You've got to embrace change. Yeah, okay. And I can successfully do that when I plan for being able to do that, right? That's what embracing change means, is being able to figure out a strategy to be successful. And in the middle of a, a pandemic, is not the time to ask people to do that. So your article is called, Please Do a Bad Job of Putting Your Courses Online. So what does that look like? What's a bad job in this time and age that we can live with as perfectionists and academics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, it gets this, this core of like who we are, right? Like this identity and this drive, which is why so many of us end up being academics and teachers because we are perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've gotten a little flack for that title. There are some people who are very distressed about it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> it's, you know, it's cheeky, right? Um, I think if you do what looks like a bad job, your students will end up being more successful. So I, I think um, in this case, uh, uh, a, a highly successful designed to be online course will make, uh, will teach students some new technology skills. Um, we'll have uh, polished uh, recorded lectures. We'll have um, robust multiple measures of student assessment. Um, we'll have been gone through a peer review system. <laughs> so, And there's no time for that now. So when I say do a bad job, I mean don't rely on technology. Rely on pedagogy. Um, always choose the lowest tech option. And don't make the lowest tech option an option for students who don't have high tech. Because then you're creating a two-tier system. So, for example, if you say, well, we're going to have Zoom classes that are synchronous and, you know, live and students can come into them. And then students who can't do that, well, they can watch the recording later. Well, no, now you have two classrooms. You have a classroom of students who have the resources to have high-speed internet, have quiet time, 
um, where they can they can Zoom, have a lone space where they can do it. And then you have students who don't have those things. And so that changes the quality of the Zoom experience for the students who are left. And it also leaves the other set of students behind. I think that's unethical, right? So you just design that you're not doing that. You have to figure out how do I still have a rigorous classroom? How do I still make sure my learning goals are, are met? So we're not talking about not teaching students. We're not talking about them not have not uh, mastering skills or, or concepts, um, but you just at the start be, um, say, I'm going to choose the, the least demanding option. I'm going to think about the most vulnerable student I can imagine. So when I give that list of like, you need to think about these qualities of your student, imagine a student who's facing all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, which would not have been a barrier necessary. I mean, it would have still been a challenge, but would not have prevented um, their participation in a, in a face-to-face class like it will in a burdensomely tech-heavy online experience. Mm-hmm. And you just design for that student at the start. Don't, don't make them trot out their tragedies for you to evaluate and figure out um, if their personal struggles are, are worth you designing around just accept that they are. Mm-hmm. And so if you design that way, I think there'll still be, there's still a lot of room for creativity. Um, I think there's still a lot of flexibility. So whatever kind of learning platform you're using, it can still work. Um, I think that um, it will vary by discipline. And so it, that looks different in a pottery class versus a Spanish class versus a sociology class. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it's gonna be not using a lot of broadband. Um, recognizing it needs to be asynchronous because students are around the globe at different times of the day now. They're working odd hours. Um, They're having to split a computer with other people using it at the same time. So it it really has to be asynchronous Um, and it should respect their privacy. Um, You know, some of the, the, the privacy issues go, go so deep here and the more technology you use the the more privacy struggles you're going to run into um you know anything that's involves recording is problematic um you have students who have undocumented family workers living with them you have students who through no fault of their own have family members who are engaged in illegal activity and they it's not their fault that they're they might have a parent who is engaging in something illegal or dangerous, yeah. um, but that doesn't mean that they want that recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's especially true, I think, you know, for, for K through 12 students. Um, and so, again, if you haven't thought about those students, it, it's okay. You weren't trained to think about those students because you haven't been building an online class. If you're building an online class, you are thinking about those students. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that involves recording, I think you have to just really avoid. Um, and if you can do things via phone um, rather than via um, internet, I think that's a good choice. So have students you know, call in your voicemail at, at your university and leave an answer to a, a short question in Spanish you know, for a Spanish class rather than having them record a video, upload it to YouTube, da, da, da. You know, so there are some really simple techniques um, that, that I think we can turn to, um, but especially being sensitive to privacy, recording, broadband, and timing. Um, I think all of the, those are, I would identify as kind of the key ones where we could, um, we create disparity pretty quickly. 
yeah. um, by making different demands on students. That's great. I, um, I have a very small class that mm-hmm. functions like a little they're like a little family, like they love each other. They started a group text and they send things back and forth to each other. So I had this like brilliant idea to have a a weekly call in where we all saw each other and, you know, look face to face and it seemed to really pay off, but you've really got me thinking now about the privacy issue that, you know, in a classroom, they might function like a little family who loves each other. But when we're all locked in our own homes, by calling in, we're betraying what's behind us, right? We're betraying what's around us. And that may not be in their best interest. Um, so I, I appreciate that. You've got me thinking about how best to protect them in this moment, not how best to feel a sense of family, right? Because we're not there anymore. Right. And, you know, it, it's a hard thing because I think there are, there's so much value in that community in the classroom. Totally. But part of what maybe makes it valuable is that it's not home. Yeah. And... Um, but it's also like, but students may still want it. And maybe they, maybe that's okay for now. Maybe it's something that has to change later. Mm-hmm. Are there students who do want it, but might now start being experiencing negative, um, negative consequences of it? How will they be able to step out of it mm-hmm. in a way that protects them mm-hmm. um, and doesn't submit them, you know, to your judgment or their, their classmates' judgments? Um, on a much shallower level, <laughs> um, what happens when people start stop getting haircuts? I think about this for some of my students for whom appearance is really important. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I kind of giggle um, because, you know, I, I'm a, a very, even, uh, even when I was more regularly in the classroom, you know, I'm kind of a stereotypical uh, pr- professor and how I present myself, you know, not a big deal for me, right? <laughs> but I have other students who at an 8 a.m. class, they make sure that they are looking sharp, right? And they want to practice a professional presentation. Um, and that gets to be a little harder as we go without haircuts or as we just start to feel more frazzled. And of course, <laughs> I think about this for higher ed a lot, this, uh, there's a gender disparity here too. Right. So, you know, you see these funny videos of professors showing about how their Zoom lecture went long or got interrupted with their kids or their cat or something like that. But um, we know the mommy penalty exists in face to face meetings. I'm going to bet that we're going to see that it exists in in remote meetings as well. It's yeah. one thing when a little kid interrupts dad for a drink and dad gets it. We we. Our culture tends to say, oh, what a good dad. When it happens for a mom, we say, why isn't she committed to her job? Mm-hmm. Why does she have those kids under control? Why doesn't she make sure that they're doing something and not interrupting her? Mm-hmm. And so those intimate details of our lives, we do judge people on, you know. And we can't just say, hey, put up a green screen or put up a, you know, a fake background for your Zoom meeting because um, even there's technology disparities in those. that They don't work on every machine. Um, you know, and again, you're asking students to address kind of one more, one more thing. And that's them. That, that would just be like, so that you're not looking at the inside of their bedroom. Um, but that still doesn't prevent the other things from their lives impeding in that space. Yeah. It's hard, right. Because you also do want to see your students and they do want to see each other. And, and that connection especially can be really important against the, uh, the mental health consequences of social isolation, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that's just one of the toughest things because students care about each other. They have a community. They are connected. 
um, you know, that ends when a class ends, or that particular form of it ends when the class ends, um, but they're prepared for that, right? And this time we weren't prepared for that. It was just, you know, go on spring break and you're not coming back. Um, and so that's a thing to grieve and mourn too. And I, I don't want to say that that means we give it up and that you don't have check-ins or, or things with a class. I don't know that there's an easy answer for that. Um, you just don't require it. Yeah. 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 I mean, definitely, I don't think you can require it. Yeah. And to be attentive that a students drop out of it, it doesn't mean that they don't want to be committed to it. Yeah. Um, it just means that maybe right now that they can't. Great. Well, I only have about two more questions for you. The first is, do you have um, like a favorite quote or a mantra that seems to be really relevant at this time in our American history? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a, that is a nice question. Um, I've been reminding myself that um, this is not a normal time, and we don't have to have normal expectations of ourselves or others. Yeah. Um, and I see this with so many of my, my colleagues who are working from home for the first time, even just learning how to work at home yourself is a, is a thing you have to learn how to do, right? Totally. Like, <laughs> so you're not just wandering to the kitchen all the time and thinking, you know, or working at all the time, right? Like every yeah. surface of your house is now a workspace. That is right. so unhealthy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. It's this creep of um, work into every domain because it's, I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. I live in my own house, and but for people who are in a very small space into an apartment, you know, where you're now, you know, working in the bathtub because it's the only room with a door, lock on the door, so your yeah. kids can leave you alone. You know, <laughs> um, it, it, there's no place where you're not working, and you're worrying about your job, and you're worrying about your students. So there's no time when you're not feeling that way. So to, to remind yourself that you are not working from home. Um, you are at home during a pandemic and then we're trying to get some work done. But really like our primary, our bigger duty is to uh, our public health and keeping ourselves and our, and our, uh, the people we're responsible for safe. Um, and teachers are so important. Like, I mean, teachers are so, so important, uh, but we're not first responders. Um, we're not the most important right now. Mm-hmm. And so learning is important but learning is not most important right now. Um, and that can hurt our egos a little bit and, and our identities a little bit. And of course, if we're paid by taxpayers, it, uh, there'll be people who find that offensive, like we're wasting their money or something. Mm-hmm. But um, to say, you know, this is not a normal time. I don't have to feel normal. People don't have to behave normally. I don't have to have a normal level of productivity. Um, and that we'll be compassionate with ourselves and, and with others um, to, to work through that. Um, and I think, I think we are more successful when we take that attitude than we take a kind of a gung-ho attitude. Fabulous. When I talk to uh, faculty and students, one of the questions I ask is, how are you establishing a sense of normalcy? And one of my favorite answers was someone who said, I'm not, and I'm not going to, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I should be acting normal. Exactly. This is not normal. And even even though this may last for a long time, we'll, we'll find rhythms and we'll find, we're not going to be waking up every day with new panic, we hope. 
Um, but we don't want to set this as an expectation. No. no. Yeah, yeah, this is abnormal. <laughs> if you were to find yourself listening to this podcast, what would you want to hear from students and faculty around the country about their experiences right now? Oh, I think that it's okay if it's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, yeah, that it's okay if it's not okay. If, if things um, feel like they f- are falling apart, and they might be falling apart. For my students, things have been blown apart, literally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things that we don't have to rise to that occasion. We don't have to, we can pause and grieve it, and that can take as long as we need it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we're grieving real losses, um, and that doesn't have to be comfortable, and it doesn't have to be something we rush through. And um, and if it, it is hard, um, and we don't have to be successful at it every day in every way. Yeah. Um, and so, in the and I think that that's the I think that's the long term strategy um, for handling this well. So that I don't want anyone to hear that as giving up. I think it's actually this gives us the grace and space for self-compassion that we need to be, to, to um, handle this. I won't say survive this um, because I I am cautious about that word because um, there'll be things that we lose that don't survive. Um, And I I don't just mean people, but there'll be institutions and there'll be ways of life. Um, But even if broadly speaking, we go back to some of us, you know, we won't get our, our college graduation ceremony back necessarily. Um, and so those are things that we grieve and that those are real losses and to, so to give yourself the time and space you need to, to take for them. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Dr. Barrett Fox, thank you so much for talking with us today. Before you go, um, tell us where people can find you. Okay. So I blog at any good thing, um, dot com and you can find my writing there. Um, and my CV, that's where I, I kind of my public face of writing, but, um, my CV and all my, uh, academic scholarly uh, book projects and things are uh, on there as well. Thank you so much. We'll link your website to the show notes when the podcast goes okay. live. Um, and I just really have loved talking with you today. So thank you for all of your time. <laughs> thank you. Insight. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find us at SouthPhoenixOralHistory.com, on Instagram at SMCCHistory, or send us an email at HistorySouthMountain at gmail.com. Music provided by Jake and Emily Speck.